0: Welcome to the Creation Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth King. Together, we'll have conversations with incredible human beings who have taken their creative outlet and turned it into something innovative. From people leaving the corporate world to be eight-figure entrepreneurs, to people who have created books, created a family, or just creating to have fun in the world. We are all in a journey to create something amazing in our lives, and I hope that you find some inspiration of your own here. This is the Creation Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Creation Innovation. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today with Jennifer Palumbo. Jay, how are you? Welcome. Good. It's so good to see you. I remember you very well from last year's ASRM.
1: And your Instagram, I've been following it, and I think it's kicking ass if I do say so myself.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. We have a lot of love that goes into it.
1: Yeah, it's obvious, and it's very. It's. I think it's sometimes difficult for people to not only break down the complexities of infertility, but to make it um, not depressing.
0: <laughs> and you do
1: a very good job of that.
0: Thank you. I mean, it's a daily. What's the word to put it nicely in the in the realm that we're in with fertility? It, it It is not nice all the time, right? It's not. Right. There's a lot of news that is not good news. And so having the ability to help people to see beyond that and give them hope when they feel there is no hope or when you're in that place of desperation. Um, I mean, I think most of us who've been down that road and trying to have a baby know know that feeling. And I say, no matter where you are on the planet, those feelings are the same. And yeah. that's really... Yeah. You know it's hard, but we try to again give them hope and show them that there's there's other options and people there that want to help you. And
1: I think too, the, when I before even I got married or or even tried to have children, I thought of my life in different categories. You know, you have your friends category, work, spirituality, um, friends, and. If maybe one area isn't doing well, like let's say your career isn't going well, but you are really great in the friends department, you're kind of like can keep going. And then once I went through infertility, I realized that it literally put a strain on every single category of my life, spirituality, my friends, because some of them were getting pregnant and I wasn't, my job, because, you know, I was so stressed about where I was going to get the money for treatment. It was incredible that here I had this like little idea of different categories and infertility literally put a strain on almost every single category.
0: I know it's, it's crazy. And I get goosebumps just hearing you say that, because again, that is universal for, for most, I, I honestly can't think of anybody who can't relate to that aspect because we tend to retreat or even if you are sharing your story with people, it is affecting one thing or the other. So Let's dive into your story. What what is your story? Tell us about that. With I always say,
1: as an Italian Catholic, Mm -hmm. my uh, life. Yes, exactly. (laughs) My life was a series of um, like babies, christenings, weddings, funerals, Mm. (laughs) and everyone in my family got married in their twenties. I think I'm the only one who hasn't, um, who waited. And uh-huh. God forbid, I just waited to marry someone I could stand. Right. <laughs> so I didn't think I was that old when I got married. I was uh, 34. I was 33 when I met my husband. We got married at 34, and we started trying to conceive right away. And being Italian and Catholic, you know, I'd always been told you'd get, you know, sneezed on and pregnant, or if you were like in a mile radius of spur, right. you would conceive. <laughs> and so I had no idea there would be any issues, um, At all. And so we started trying and nothing was happening and nothing was happening. And slowly, and it's incredible, if you know me on a day to day basis, I'm a very, everyone says I have a very big personality and I'm very outgoing and, you know, make a lot of jokes and blah, blah, blah. Infertility completely changed all that because I could not believe what was happening that I was having a problem. I was like in denial. And I don't know if it's the Catholic thing or just the human thing. I kept thinking that because I couldn't get pregnant, I did something wrong. Like I was Mm. seeing it as a punishment as opposed to the medical diagnosis that it is. It's like a personal commentary on me. And everyone around me was, I mean, I worked in an office then. And no joke, three people got pregnant at the same time. And after I did my first IVF, it was unsuccessful. I came back to work because so I took off a week. And my boss asked me to plan a baby shower for the three pregnant women. Oh, no. <laughs> like, the irony. <sighs> I know. It's just like, dear God. Um, and everyone at my office was like, oh, there must be something in the water. You know, everyone's getting pregnant. And I'm like, I guess I'm at the infertility soda machine or something. Did you have a
0: diagnosis or it was just undiagnosed? They could not right. okay. figure it out.
1: They really couldn't. Okay. And I'm still... Technically unexplained, but something that I do think is interesting that I always like to share is I think in my case, once we started doing IVF, the IVF in and of itself became diagnostic. Um, And that I, I think can be, I mean, if you have to go the IVF route, I do like to kind of offer a glimmer of hope. I do think the IVF in my case, no one wants to do it, but it actually was helpful in figuring out what was wrong with me because. My thing was they would retrieve like 13 eggs, which is pretty good. Yes. But then I'd only have like one embryo. Right. And my doctor was so funny. She's like, it's like your eggs have really high standards because either they form like a perfect eight cell embryo or nothing. <laughs> like there was no, you know, some people have like maybe a four cell embryo or a six cell. Right. It was either eight cell or nothing. Um, and so I was unexplained. I, I yeah, exactly. Exactly. My eggs and my dating standards were similar. <laughs> and so we're just trying to figure out like why we can't get more embryos from all these eggs. And we try different protocols. I saw three different doctors. Um time's going on. And the first IVF uh was covered by insurance and then that was it. It was a ten thousand dollar minimum. And uh IVF on average across the United States is twelve thousand five hundred. That's without medication. So then the second IVF, I got covered by a clinical trial. Oh, good. And then the third uh, was almost like crowdsourcing. Um, my parents contributed, my sister. Um, we took money out of savings. And it was that was the last one where we could afford it. Like there was not going to be any fourth. And right. again, I got the most eggs I ever got. Only had one embryo. And I mean, through nothing short of a miracle, that's the embryo that stuck. And it's now my 11-year-old son, Michael. Amazing. Um, so that was my infertility journey. And after I had Michael, I went back to the doctor. And I'm like, do you think I should ever try to have another kid? She was like, no. She, and I actually, people are like, I can't believe she was that blunt with you. But I, I respected it. Yeah. She was like, if you did it, maybe do one more IVF and then stop because you're not a good responder. So I, we decided not to, you know, it just, we didn't want to go through it again. I just couldn't imagine doing the shots and all of that again. So we gave away all of our baby stuff and, you know, got comfortable in having just one child. And then literally a week before I turned 41, I was working at a company called Fertility Authority and we were in a meeting and they were talking about a period tracking app. And it occurred to me, I hadn't gotten my period. (laughs) It's, I, I never would have thought about it if it wasn't for this meeting. Um, and so I, on my lunch hour, took a pregnancy test because I was so convinced I wasn't pregnant, and it turned out I conceived on my own.
0: Amazing.
1: Yeah. So it's a little weird because, because it took me like many years and thousands and thousands of dollars to have my first son. And through some, I don't know, twist of fate, I was able to have a second one.
0: Right. And, you know, those stories happen more than we hear quite honestly, right? We, we often get the, the IVF journey online and see somebody struggling through that. And then they kind of go away from social media and we don't see them. And then we don't hear about, oh, and then they got pregnant years later or 11 months later or whatever. I see that actually probably 40% of my clients that happens to for whatever reason.
1: Yeah. I mean, my acupuncturist has this theory. Um, She's like, I wonder if the body is like, oh, this is how you do it. Right. <laughs> I don't know. But the thing was for me, I was still very much a heavy advocate. And to get pregnant on my own, I know this sounds odd. I felt weird. Like yeah. I felt like, oh, did I betray the infertility community? And can I still advocate now? Um it was it was a it was a very uncomfortable time.
0: I know exactly what you were saying because I went through all the things, but in the end, I did get pregnant naturally with my kids. Right. So right. I have all the things and the losses and the IVF and all the things, but the little humans that I have right now right. are from that. So I feel you a hundred percent.
1: I definitely. I went through like a month or two where I was like, I don't think I can advocate anymore. <laughs> like I felt like a fraud, and there's this woman um named carolyn savage if you google her she actually was going through ivf this is a very well-known story i think her book is called inconceivable she they transferred the wrong embryo into her uterus and she ended up kind of being an unwitting um surrogate and her and i met through the documentary vegas baby and i was telling her kind of what was going on and i said i don't know if i can be an advocate and she was the one to say to me, you know, people survive breast cancer right. and they still continue to advocate. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking kind of like what I was saying earlier, when I was in the thick of IVF, I was depressed. I didn't go out. I, didn't, I avoided my friends because I just felt like a failure. Um, I never would have had the strength or energy to go to uh, the capital and advocate for access to care for fertility coverage. And that was the thing that really got me. Cause I'm like, well, wait a minute, someone is where I was then. And maybe I can advocate for them. So right. like when I'd be in bed all weekend crying over getting my period, you know, that person can do that and I'll represent them, you know, now that I'm on the other side. 100%. And then, and then I was able to reconcile it, but it took me yeah. a
0: bit. It's funny. Somebody used that same example for me too, with breast cancer survivors, you know, yeah. Um, and it is a good a, a good analogy for the both. So that led you to advocacy, which has you know been a big part of your life since then. And how did was it just a natural progression for you to get into that? And I think for all of us who already are already in the industry, quote unquote, we are our hearts are led to be there and to support that and and figure out what states need it most, whether it's our own or somebody else's, and. Um, to fight the fight, so to speak, so that we can have that access to care. But what really lit your fire for that specifically? I
1: think the more I learned, the more I got angry because initially, and I don't think this is a hundred percent the case now. Um, I don't think it's permanent yet, but for example, I think it was like 2015 I found out that our veterans didn't have access to fertility treatment. Right. And some of them, many of them, have been um, injured in the line of duty and it's impacted their reproductive organs. Um, Senator Tammy Duckworth is a good example of this. And she, she's talked about this. And I remember her saying in a speech that I heard her make, you know, right now there's a veteran laying in bed who's wondering, how am I going to be able to have children? And when I found that out, um, and then when I found out at the time, it was much less right now, it's 19 States in the U S have some sort of fertility benefits, but the world health organization says infertility is a medical diagnosis, but the U S doesn't recognize that. And most insurance companies don't recognize that. And the more I learned about this, like, how can we not cover vets who served for us? You know, how, how can we not cover their fertility treatment? So I wrote an article about it for the Huffington post and, started getting involved with local advocacy efforts and, of course, with Resolve. But to me, the more I learned, the, the more unfair it seemed. And I couldn't believe some of the things still, well, a lot of the things still don't make any sense. You know, right. if you have a certain medical diagnosis, you have blocked um, fallopian tubes, most insurance companies will make you do IUI three three times before they let you go to IVF. That's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> that's just dumb that 's a waste of time
0: right. Right. and
1: um that really is what let my fire and made me angry and mm-hmm. The more I think I learned about the technical side, like because I think I was so in my own patient journey, sure. but then when I started learning about general insurance practices and mandated coverage, and um you know that that there could be an adoption tax credit, which actually really helps more children. Um, become adopted and helps the parents afford to adopt children. Um, The more you learn that there are avenues that people can build their families, but they're not being supported, I just, I couldn't help but try to get involved and make a difference. It's really frustrating because it can take a very long time, Um, but it's
0: still, it's still worth it. A hundred percent. And I, I recently spoke to the foundation Chick, um,
1: Chick, Chick mission. mission, yeah, yes.
0: Right Similar to what you're saying about the veterans, right? These women that are going through, oh, right, cancer, cancer or other things that are, you know, going. They have to, they have to go through treatment, and therefore want to preserve their fertility prior to that treatment. But the insurance companies in the states are saying, "No, we're not going to cover that." I mean, to me, that's how how that is was that another going? one. I had like, no are idea. You kidding me? You yeah. know, so, um. That I completely feel you when you get fired up about these things, because we should get fired up about it. It's I think it's a matter of educating the people that are making the decisions to let them know, hey, this this is the process. This is why it is so important for this to be preserved and or to help provide the care for them in the care situation for the veterans in those situations so that they had the opportunity, especially like you said, if they're injured on our behalf, right? right Protecting yeah. us. I was floored. There.
1: Yeah, because yeah. I don't think Tricare. I don't think Tricare has fertility coverage. But the same thing. I was um, talking to the Alliance for Fertility Preservation. I just assumed if you had cancer, you you would be covered to preserve your fertility. And I had met with this really wonderful nurse at Sloan Kettering, and she told me that she had a patient who is a man who was holding off on his cancer treatment Mm. because he was trying to get his wife pregnant Mm -hmm. (laughs) before he underwent care. I'm like, this is nuts. And I just think it's ignorance that you would assume that this would be covered.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's why I feel like the more we can bring awareness and educate people in any form, the better off we are you know so if anybody out there's listening to this continue to have these conversations in the Starbucks line about your fertility or infertility or who you know that's going through it because it needs to reach the larger masses to to have that availability for people to get the support that they need on all levels oh god yeah and, you know and that's it's
1: such a good point because when i was in uh washington dc and i'm talking to senators and Representatives. There was one guy I met. <laughs> he I won't say which. I won't say who. But he was he was um, a Republican representative in my uh, area, and I was talking to him about infertility, and I said something about um, how one third of infertility is made up by you know women's issues, the other third is men, and the other third is unexplained. And he went, "Wait a minute, wait." He said, "Men can have infertility issues." It, I was like, "Yeah," <laughs> I was floored, floored. And he's—I mean—a bright, intelligent man. He doesn't have, you know, a job where you don't use your brain. <laughs> like, right. It's sort of—and of, therein like, lies the problem. Yeah. Um, I yeah. never forgot that, and I literally ended mm-hmm. up talking to him about the different infertility issues men can
0: have, <laughs> it's like sperm issues, and I'm like, "Oh my god!" Right. Like shocked. Well, sadly, even with the doctors, I feel like the majority of the time, their go-to answer is, oh, your your eggs are too old. Yeah. What about my husband? You don't want right. to talk about him or what's happening yeah. there? You know what I mean? So oh, yeah. that that infuriates me too because don't just give me the blanket answer of egg health, right? right? You don't know me. You don't know anything about me other than my age. So I even in that regard of just not bringing – the sperm into that first initial conversation to say, oh, right. perhaps it's the sperm that is trying to make this embryo that could be, right? And we're still so far from that. Yes, they're they're bringing the men in for the initial consults to do those analysis earlier than they used to, but yeah. it still blows my mind, you know? Oh, Let's- yeah. I've heard
1: so many stories, especially when I worked at Fertility Authority, because we um, would take patient calls from literally all across the United States and you started to see themes. And there were so many, I mean, I I can't even count how many times where the man was never tested like ever. And I mean, how do you put together a puzzle if you're missing an important piece? It's just, Mm. it's shocking. And you make a good point too, because even patients, I don't think always know, I think their rights or what they can advocate for in terms of themselves. There was a woman on Twitter that I always remember, and she reached out to me and she said, you know, I've had um, three pregnancy losses and I'm seeing my doctor tomorrow. And what should I ask them? So I said, oh, you know, I would ask about whether or not they recommend um, PGTA, um, if they think there's a uterine abnormality. I said, but, you know, your RE will totally know what to look for. And she wrote back, what's an RE? Oh. And I was like, "Wait a minute, who are you seeing tomorrow?" <laughs> and she said, "My primary care physician." Oh. Dear. And I was like, "Oh, no, 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 no." <laughs> but I mean, if you think about it, why would they know? You know, right. if you're getting pregnant and you're not having trouble conceiving, why would you necessarily think of going to a reproductive endocrinologist if you're having pregnancy losses?
0: Well, I think even the OBs, unfortunately, tend to keep their patients with them longer oh, yeah. than they should, you oh, yeah. know? And Which I don't know why they do that. I don't do they make either. more money that way? I, I mean, not to be blunt. <laughs> and no offense to them because I obviously they have a time and a place for when they need to be an, play an important role. But in that preconception fertility space, especially if they've had losses and whatnot, that's not their wheelhouse. That's not their zone of genius. So right. I think people think in their mind if i go to see a fertility doctor and get the lay of the land that means i have to do ivf right and i always say that doesn't necessarily mean that's what's happening it's just you want to see a specialist first who that's what they study that's what they did their fellowship in that's what they they know inside and out to tell you what is going on right and then you can decide what your options are and know what your options are but you can't see an orthopedic Right or a general practitioner to tell you information about, again, the lay of the land of what's happening with you. So I I always say this is don't go in there thinking, okay, because it's almost like this surrender. Okay. We finally made the decision. We're going to go see a reproductive endocrinologist or fertility doctor, whatever they're going to call it, thinking that they've kind of thrown in, in the towel. And I say, no, go see them first. Figure yeah. out what's happening, and then you can know your path of which way to go and whatnot. So, yeah, and I think that's a good point in the
1: sense of I think sometimes patients don't realize they can take an active role in their fertility journey. Like right. they think they can't for some reason. Um, but, you know, from what I understand, and I'm not a doctor nor if I played one on TV, so I apologize if I get this wrong, but I think REs do two more years over the OBGYN studies. To know about fertility specifically, I think it's like two more years. Yeah, and I just feel like um, when it comes to fertility in general, in terms of education and and the basics, no one ever talks about re's as it right. you know may be helpful with PCOS or endometriosis or mm-hmm. pregnancy losses. They're they're sort of not always forefront, um, and they really can be. I mean, they can save years of time. I've, I've heard so many patients, this makes me stabby um, where they're like 38 and they're doing Clomid cycles with their OBGYN. Oh my God. I I get like hostile because I mean (laughs) how that's just irresponsible. Right. For so many reasons. So many reasons. Yeah. It's just, Mm -hmm. so I think, but I think it's hard to blame the patient because disinformation isn't readily out there. So I support not Starbucks line
0: theory. <laughs> yes. They don't know any better. Exactly. They're like, okay, great. And then they get pregnant with twins and they're like, okay, great. Yeah. I don't know what happened, you know? I'm like, <laughs> well, yeah. this is what happened. Yeah. So it's definitely, I think, an education and awareness comes down to getting more of and it's awesome because there are a lot of REs that are on social media now that are yeah you know bringing awareness to what it is that they do specifically which is very cool so thank goodness for them to stepping out of their practice to to get online to relate to so many people that need to hear the messages and the information that they're giving
1: what i wish on that note is more celebrities were transparent or i don't know just I know it's, it. I don't know if it's beneficial to, to them at at all to help out in any way, but I think of like Gabrielle Union um, and maybe Carrie Underwood, they both shared that they had multiple pregnancy losses. I think Gabrielle Union had like, what is it, like eight or nine. Right. And I always wish, although she's been incredible and I, I don't mean to take away, but I always wish she would have just thrown in, that's not normal. If you, If you have more than two or three, right. something's going on. Like right. what doctor let her have hundred
0: percent. A hundred percent. This yeah. is not 50 years ago where we need to suffer through that. No that's right. way. right. Um, I agree. I was reading, was it, um, is it Tiffany Haddish or something? She also had eight or nine losses. I mean, that's just yeah. crazy. And then, so according to
1: ACOG is if, if you have more than three pregnancy losses, and then according to ASRM, it's two pregnancy losses, mm-hmm. you should see a specialist because you may have something called um, RPL, which is uh, recurrent pregnancy loss. Mm -hmm. And there are options. Like you said, it may not even entail IVF. It may just be um, some sort of- Taking baby aspirin. (laughs) Right, exactly. I mean, there's autoimmune issues. There's a lot of other things. And until you kind of take that first step, then you can, exactly like you said, you know what your options are and you are in control. You can decide which one you
0: want to pursue. Right. I, have a client who she's in Canada and recently just realized hers was Rogam. And again, 50 years ago, women were having seven, eight losses because yeah. of Rogam. Now it's something that you get basically automatically once you get to a certain point here in the United States to, you get tested for that. Do you have the antibodies or not? And, right. you know, for my client, that was all she needed. And now she's, you know, on her way. But it's, it can be really easy and it doesn't have to be such a struggle. Of course, sometimes it is, but even if it is a struggle, you still have people that want to support you through it. So it, it feels like it's so heavy and it feels like you're alone and you'll never get through it. And we are both here to tell you, you will, and there's people that can support you through the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So as far as your your own situation, and now you have two boys now, was getting into parenthood what you thought it was going to be after infertility? I mean, obviously you had your surprise after. Yeah. So that, that was a bonus. But was it what you expected? That's a really good question. And, you know, I don't think anyone's ever asked that,
1: <laughs> which is really nice. You know, I think particularly the first year of being a mom, was so um how do I put this it was so through the lens of infertility that it was incredible because most people say the first year is the hardest and don't get me wrong you know you're I was breastfeeding and waking up every three hours and yeah but I think because I had gone through all these years of dreaming of having a child and experiencing that I just was like wow this is actually happening like I remember his first Halloween
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um dressing him up like Winnie the Poe. And I'm like, oh my God, this is all, like, it was like all the stuff I fantasized about right. or that I, I just was hoping for. So I just right. remember the first year of, of Michael's life being, I mean, tough, but really just so freaking grateful that I got to um, experience all of that. Um, but I think it's amazing even now, you know, Michael's 11 and Matthew's 8, I still think about it all the time. Like if they're driving me crazy, you know, I'm just grateful that I have them. And, you know, I, I shared this with you offline. My oldest son is autistic and my younger son recently said to me, do you ever wish he, he wasn't autistic? Hmm. And I was like, oh my God, this is a big question. And I said, well, to be honest with you, I said, mommy didn't think she could ever have kids. I said, so I'm just grateful that you're both here and you exist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I mean, that's true. And I think it's amazing that once you go through that journey, no matter what happens, whether you adopt or go through surrogacy or decide, you know, you just don't want to go through treatment anymore or you're child free, I think it does change you a little bit, maybe makes you more empathetic um, and kind of keep things in
0: perspective in some sense, no matter what. Of course, you can always get back to that feeling, right? Of your period starting or yeah. going into those fertility clinics. It always brings you back to like, okay, this is this is the baseline of where we started, and the gratitude that I have for these little guys, regardless of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And um, thank you for sharing that about your son, because I, I think also people don't really talk about autism. Yeah. In, and and in, I'll
1: say this. Sorry to interrupt. Infertility really prepared me for autism, because it's sort of similar in that instead of I like was able to skip a couple of steps instead of going down that path of shame and oh what did I do and I'm being punished. It was like no no, yes, <laughs> like I learned this from infertility. You have to find out as much information as possible and destigmatize it. And um, yeah, it it's amazing how much infertility has informed. A lot of the rest of my life. And even now, just as a side note, because Michael's through IVF and Matthew, um, my younger son, wasn't, people have asked, Oh, do you think Michael's autistic because he was through IVF? Mm-hmm. And some people are like, Well, don't you get insulted? And I'm like, No, because it's an opportunity to have a conversation about everything.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Infertility, IVF, autism, you know. So I, right. I don't get insulted. I think. And I think that's the biggest thing I could say about infertility is any, the number one thing I would say to everyone that I wish I knew was it's a medical diagnosis, just like anything else. It has nothing to do with you as a person. You shouldn't feel shame. If you had diabetes, arthritis, you would go see a doctor. And um, it's, it's really been kind of the same experience with autism. He's just different,
0: you know, but not less. And what a beautiful way to, Change the narrative of that as an opportunity to educate somebody else about it, right? right? Because I so often people are offended about being asked about whatever it is, whether it's a divorce or um, yeah. IVF or your child child's behavior at school, whatever that is. But it's also an opportunity to educate them about your child. What are the amazing things about your child what should you look out for if you have a child right and all the other things because again some of us will always know someone who is affected by this even if it's as simple as how do i how do i interact with a family that is dealing with right. a special needs child right. right that's important to know as same as how do i interact with a friend that's going through struggles with fertility it's really important. Again, going back, I feel like the theme of this conversation is education and awareness and how we can educate people on all aspects of whatever it is that you're going through, because it it helps in a lot of ways to make the world a better place for more compassion and more empathy in whatever someone else may be going through.
1: And and, and exactly that, like I am no celebrity. (laughs) I am not well known, but because just even on social media, or at holiday parties, or at work, because people know I'm open about infertility and and what have you. The people I don't even know have like sent me messages like that person through Twitter to be like, hey, can I ask you a question? So I think however you're comfortable advocating, I guess what I'm saying is when you share your story, you may not realize you really are making a difference whether you're talking to you know, someone at Capitol Hill or just someone at a party. I know, like, my mother's like, oh, so-and-so's daughter's going to call you because she's All about right. to start IVF. Like, you really can make a difference even in a small circle. And so I know people, because I was, I was that person, are very private about their journey. I was totally there. I didn't want to tell anyone. I was embarrassed. I was terrified. But, again, the more I learned, the more I realized – Sharing my story was the most powerful tool I can do. It was empowering and gave me my power back, but it also really helped other people not feel the way that I did.
0: Agree. Yeah. Same story. And I think everybody processes it differently. Some people process their situation as they're going through it and they're sharing as it's happening and that's okay too. For Jennifer and I, it was let me get through this and figure out what's happening And then I can go back and say, okay, this was my story and how can I help other people? So however it's happening for you is okay. Just, you know, get to a point if you can to know that you will help someone else with your story. There is somebody that needs to hear your voice in whatever way that that looks like because we, as a collective of human beings, we need each other. Amen, sister. So what are some advice that you give for somebody who's looking to advocate for fertility and or looking for resources around fertility and benefits and all of those things? Um, What's great is Resolve
1: actually has a kit you can download if you want to advocate at your place of business. And I think that's probably the first question people need to ask themselves is how open do they want to be about advocating? Because sometimes it's just a matter of, you can write your um, local lawmaker and be like, hey, we don't have fertility coverage in our area. This is something that impacts you know one in seven and it would be something I think your constituents would really appreciate you looking into. So if you want to be more private, you can advocate just one on-one to um, you know your local lawmakers. Um, if you maybe don't want to do that but you feel comfortable going to your HR department, There's a bunch of resources online with Resolve in particular. They literally have a kit that you can download and present to your employer about why fertility benefits can be incredibly beneficial. And it really, there's been tons of research on it. It's downloadable right now, a study that EMD, Serono and Resolve did about how um, employees are more likely to stay with the company if they had fertility benefits, that it decreases right. the amount of absences they have, that it's a good uh, retaining tool for new employees. There's, there's hard evidence that it's beneficial to a company. So you could advocate to your own HR department, advocate to a lawmaker. Um, and then, of course, there are local advocacy efforts. I live in New York, and so I was involved in advocating for something called FAFTA, which was the Fair Access to Fertility Act. Um, or Treatment Act, excuse me. And that took several years to pass, but it did, uh, I think in 2019. And then the next one we did was CPSA, which is the Child Protective Services Act. And it was to make surrogacy, paid surrogacy legal in New York. That took forever, (laughs) but that passed. So you also may want to look at any legislation around family building in your state, but Resolve really... I mean, there's ASRM, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. There's Chick Mission. There's the Alliance for Fertility Preservation, Cade Foundation. But in terms of like hardcore advocacy, I would definitely
0: recommend Resolve, the National Infertility Association, because they even know what's going on in all the local levels. Right. And they do such a great job of keeping everybody up to date with what's happening, what's new, what, what needs to happen, what they are looking for with help with, from the community, et cetera. So I I agree. It's an awesome place to start.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. Oh, I really appreciate it. I was just going to say, the only thing I would add is I also just want to make sure people know that sometimes it's not, if you'll be a parent, it's how. Yes. I always feel that's important to remember because like you have options, you have tons of options and granted, I know they're not cheap, (laughs) but for me, that was a major comfort. I'm like, okay, well, it's maybe how just how am I going to be adoption, surrogacy, you know, exactly. IUI. So yeah. I just it have may to not throw that in there. look
0: like what you thought it was going to look like, but it can happen. And it's just a matter of figuring out how it can happen. And right. there are so many resources. There's grants, there's, you know, yeah. loan programs now specifically for um, all sorts, like whether you're adopting or going through IVF or whatnot, It just takes a little bit of digging to see what's out there. Some clinics give cash discounts, you know, it, you just need to open those conversations and do a little digging, reach out to coaches, doctors, whoever, Jennifer, to, to see, do you have any suggestions of where I should go to start? Um, you know, one
1: thing I will say, um, that I do recommend to people a lot, there are a lot of grants and definitely look up grant information, but what really did help me for my second IVF is there's a website called clinicaltrials.gov. And if you put in your zip code, they have clinical trials in your area. You can even ask your clinic. But that's what I did for my second IVF. And there was an IVF clinical trial that I qualified for that was totally free. So that's amazing. Yeah, I don't know a lot of people know about that. So I definitely would recommend that as a starting point.
0: Thanks for adding that. Well, again, thanks for being here. And I can't wait for our paths to cross again soon. Yeah, me too. It was really fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the creation innovation podcast. Make sure to follow us on Spotify for free episodes and subscribe to the creation innovation podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to get your podcast. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening for a chance to receive a special gift. Yes, we actually do send out gifts. It's my favorite thing to do. So visit us at elizabethking.com backslash creationinnovation for more information on how to enter. Every review counts and we are so grateful. You can follow me at the official Elizabeth King on Instagram or TikTok. Until next time.